Our text this morning is a familiar one to most of you. Matthew chapter 6, verses 15, uh, 5 through 15. I more than invite you, I encourage you to follow along. Um, if you do not have a Bible with you, you should be able to find one in a chair near you. Um, you'll find uh, Matthew 6 on page 811, on page 811. Reading, starting at verse 5, going through verse 15. We just sang, uh, speak, O Lord, through your word. Let's God's word uh, speak to us afresh now. This is Jesus speaking. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that, by, <clears throat> that they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father, in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Here ends the reading of God's most holy word. May it accomplish all that he desires. Thank you, Tim. I want to invite you now to open up your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Our sermon text for today. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I want uh, to convince you this morning of the importance of prayer. Um, not just the importance of being in the habit of praying, but praying with the right attitude before God. Uh, do you remember the Old Testament character of Daniel? Uh, he was taken from Jerusalem as a young man and lived 70 years of his life in Babylon. Uh, his life spanned the reign of three foreign kings. And God had, in fact, taken Judah into exile because of their stubborn unrepentant sin, and through the prophet, Jeremiah had promised that they would be in exile for 70 years. Well, if you remember, near the end of those 70 years, Daniel, uh, knowing those promised 70 years were coming to, to an end, began to pray for God to restore his favor on his beloved city, Jerusalem, and he prayed this so that God's name would be honored there in that city. That prayer is recorded for us in Daniel chapter 9. But then something really fascinating happens in 
verse 20 of chapter 9 there in Daniel. Daniel says this in verses 20 through 23 of Daniel 9. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So this is amazing. Just as Daniel began to pray in accordance with God's revealed will, the Lord answered his prayer. And the Lord sent Gabriel to give his answer to Daniel. Daniel knew something about prayer, didn't he? And if you remember, that's how he ended up in the lion's den. But he also prayed with the right attitude before God. He was humble, he confessed sin, he cried out for mercy, and yet he, he boldly believed God's great promise. Does it ever surprise you that God hears your prayer? Does it ever surprise you that God answers your prayer? <laughs> I, I, I'm afraid too often, I certainly can be, and maybe you too, we can be like the early church who had gathered to pray uh, after James had been martyred and then Peter was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. If you remember there in Acts 12, the Lord rescued Peter miraculously from a prison and then he went to the home of the disciples who were praying for his deliverance, and Peter knocked on the gate of the home, and a young girl named Rhoda came to the gate, and she heard and recognized Peter's voice, and then in her excitement forgot to open the gate, but went to tell others that Peter was at the gate. And do you remember their response? They said to her, you are out of your mind. Peter's in prison. That's why we're praying for his deliverance. But thankfully, Peter kept knocking, and she opened the door, and Peter went in. But, but I would argue too often, we pray, but really don't expect God to answer. We, we must remember what James says in James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Um, as an example from the Old Testament, when the 450 prophets of Baal prayed on Mount Carmel, nothing happened. Um, do, you, do you remember that scene? Elijah had a showdown with these false prophets. Uh, they did their best to ask their false gods to bring fire down to burn up the sacrifice, but nothing at all happened. And Elijah mocked them by saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. But they didn't know the true and living God. 
they did not have a right standing before the true and living God, and their words meant nothing as they prayed to their false gods. And nothing happened. But Elijah, who did in fact know the true and living God, and did in fact have a right standing before God, called upon God, and fire came from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. But, but today, who is this righteous person? Well, the law establishes for us that there are none righteous. No, not one. We are told that in Romans 3. The gospel teaches us that one who is justified by faith is counted righteous. And so I would argue that the one justified by faith and counted righteous through Christ knows the true and living God and is in right standing before God and therefore his or her prayer has great power. Um, it's not uncommon for me, particularly in my role as a, the chaplain for the Merton Community Fire Department, but it's not uncommon for me to be in the community and people will ask me to pray for them. And sometimes they say something like, I'm asking you because you have this special connection with God. And I, I never like to hear that kind of response because in truth, the matter, the truth of the matter is this, you, uh, um, anyone who is counted righteous in Christ has access to the throne of God's grace and can pray. Anybody who is counted righteous in Christ has access, can boldly go before the throne of God's grace and, and pray. Uh, the New Testament teaches us that every member is a, is a minister. All believers have the responsibility and the privilege and the calling to pray for one another. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, Paul gives Timothy some specific instruction about prayer when the church gathers together. Uh, here we read, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, if you remember in the first seven verses of chapter 2, Paul told Timothy to pray for all types of people, even those in high positions. Paul told Timothy to make prayer a priority and to make the gospel a priority. Those two priorities are vital for our ministry in a troubled world. Uh, we have, uh, in the gospel and in the person of Christ, we have what the world needs. We know the one that the world needs. And, and so now, based on what Paul tells Timothy and the church in verse 8, there are a number of questions that I would like to ask you this morning. It's, the first is this, will you affirm the importance of prayer? And you might ask, well, why? Well, first, this is God's desire. In verse 8, Paul says, I desire then, and then he goes on with the instructions about prayer. So why then do I say this is God's desire when Paul says, I desire? Well, it's because Paul is writing this with apostolic authority. He's writing this as the Holy Spirit is at work in him and through him so that 
what we have in verse 8 is exactly what God wants us to have. It's God's desire for prayer to take place in the church in a particular kind of way. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But notice, too, that this is God's desire for the nations. Verse 8 actually says, I desire then in every place, um, which I think expresses God's desire for the church, not just in Jerusalem, but in all of the earth among all nations in every place to pray in right ways. That was God's desire. It's really interesting how the Lord often confronted Israel for their offensive prayers and worship. There were many times the Israelites were very, very religious, but all of their religious activity, their prayers, their offerings, their sacrifices were actually offensive to God. So much so that in Malachi chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, the Lord says, Oh, that there were one among you who would just shut the doors, meaning the doors of the temple, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Now, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem. But then the Lord speaks of what he will yet do in the future. Listen to verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So, as the church learns to pray in right ways in every place, the promise of Malachi 1 here is being fulfilled. We, we, we have great reason to affirm the importance of prayer. But what kind of prayer? Uh, what kind of prayer is Paul talking about here in verse 8? Well, he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. In other words, this is God's desire for men, for, or because of the context, for male leaders within the church. In verses 1 through 7, Paul taught the church to pray for all types of people. Now, in verses 8 through 15, Paul will give specific instructions for men in the church and for women in the church. Today, we will talk about the role of men or male leaders within the church. Um, this seems to be the immediate context. When, we, context. when we've gathered together as a church, this is how male leaders should pray. It's also possible that men are singled out because they're most prone to pray in wrong ways. Um, if, if they are leaders in the church, they too would be the most visible in their sin, which would include praying without holy hands, with sinful anger, with a quarrelsome spirit. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Uh, ne next week, Lord willing, we'll talk about the role of women in the church, a, a portion of their role in the church. But as we start today, we must affirm the importance of prayer in the church. And though this text doesn't teach us, I think it's critical to affirm, and certainly it's very clear throughout other portions of Scripture, that we pray to the Father through Christ. So will you affirm, secondly, will you affirm 
that prayers are heard through Christ. So the privilege of prayer is all grace. It's undeserved favor. How, how can we expect to be heard by God? Uh, Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places or into the very presence of God by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from uh, an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So it is the shed blood of Jesus that washes away the guilt of our sin so that we can enter into the presence of God, so that we can pray and we can expect to be heard. But even more, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we read, He, Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we draw near to the Father through the Son, but better yet, Christ is always making intercession for us. Christ is speaking on our behalf. Um, again, this, what a marvelous grace this is. Now, having said all of that, the focus of verse 8 is really on the need to pray in this way. And the, the end of verse 8 says, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, the, the posture of prayer is spoken of here, and it can include the lifting of hands. Psalm 141, verse 2 says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Uh, Psalm 28.2 says, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. But I think the greater importance here is the need to pray with holy hands or with a holy life. Uh, as we stated earlier, we can approach God through the shed blood of Jesus. We are counted righteous by faith in Christ. Christ is our holy, holiness and righteousness. We're accepted by God uh, based on the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. But as one declared to be righteous in Christ, Paul teaches us in verse 8, how to live as a redeemed people. And, and basically he is saying, you, you can't hold on to sin, re refusing to repent of your sin, and expect your prayers to be heard. And, and so, thirdly, will you affirm that prayers are not heard without holy hands? An example of this is found in 1 Peter 3.7, which says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So here is a husband who is counted righteous in Christ, yet because of his failure to live with his wife in an understanding way, his prayers or his worship are hindered. So you, you cannot 
hang on to your sin, unwilling to leave your sin, unwilling to put it to death by the power of the Spirit and expect your prayers to not be hindered. Uh, Listen to what the Lord says in Isaiah chapter 1, just at the beginning of this prophecy from Isaiah 12 through 17. He says, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of the convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Now, I am so thankful for the fact that God saved me, saved us through the shed blood of Jesus. I'm also thankful that the Holy Spirit is at work to progressively sanctify us. If we are alive in Christ, we have been given all that we need to grow and change. It is by the the power of the Holy Spirit that we can put sin to death in our life. And if we are not doing that, then we are no better than those who don't know God. If we are not in the habit of repenting of sin as believers... Why should we expect God to hear and answer our prayer? Uh, Paul says it like this in Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Praise God that this is what we can expect to be happening in the lives of those who are alive in Christ. Paul's teaching the church in verse 8 that leaders in the church should lead in prayer and do this as they are growing in holiness. But it's not just holy living. Will you also affirm that prayers are not heard with sinful anger? Now, it it is possible to be angry and not sin. Ephesians 4.26 teaches us that. It's possible for men to have righteous anger and to express that without sinning. 
However, James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Most of the time, man's anger produces a lot of sin, and it can do a lot of harm. Proverbs 14, 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 16, 32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 29, 22, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Psalm 37, 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Ephesians 4, 30 through 32 says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Maybe you have been the recipients the recipient of someone's sinful anger. Uh, may, maybe you've been impacted by the pattern of someone's sinful anger. Maybe you've been the one guilty of sinful outburst. M maybe you have left a trail of destruction in the lives of people, even even ones that you love because of sinful anger. Folks, this, this should not be. Um, I remembered a situation when I worked at Honda before going to seminary, and um, there, there were a number of believers there, but there were not a great number of believers that I worked with, but one man was a fellow believer, and we had some good fellowship, but he had a huge anger problem. And he would just blow up at a moment's notice, and he created lots of problems. And he really hurt the name of Christ. And I knew I had to talk with him. So I knew how I, I had to confront this man who had a reputation of blowing up in a very angry way, uh, if there was something that he didn't like. And so I prayed, and God gave me strength, and I confronted him, and praise God, he received it, and really began to work on it, began to change. Um, praise God for that. Um, do, you, do you have a quick temper? Do you have a short fuse? Are you guilty of sinful anger? If so, the Spirit says repent. 
put, put, put off your sinful anger. By the power of the Spirit, put sinful anger to death. And uh, we, we change when we stop doing the wrong thing and begin to do the corresponding right thing. And so Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 is very helpful where it says, put off anger and rage and put on kindness and compassion forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Uh, when we were uh, serving at Wheelersburg Baptist Church before coming here, um, we came out of seminary in 96. We went to a church that was close to 300 people. And about a year and a half later, they were down to about 150 people. And a little while later, they were down to about 110 people. And there were a number of issues that came to the surface where uh, Pastor Brad was taking lots of shots. And he was attacked again and again and again uh, in very ungodly ways. And one of the things that I remember that just sticks out so distinctly to me was no matter what kind of shots he took, I just watched him again and again respond in the spirit and not in his flesh. Um, if he would have responded in his flesh, he would have fought fire with fire. And my, my hunch is, uh, today that church is strong, that church is solid. Uh, Pastor Brad has been there uh, 30 plus years and um, it's, it's a tremendous resource in that tri-state area. Um, but my hunch is that just in this one little way, if, if Brad would have responded in his flesh rather than in his spirit, I hate to think about the kind of damage that would have happened with this church just really being blown apart, being blown apart. Verse 8 is a call to church leaders to lead in worship, to lead in praying, and to do that without sinful anger. And certainly what is good for leaders is good for every member. And so don't expect for our prayers to be heard if we refuse to repent of sinful anger. Now this morning, one final thing I'm going to ask you to Affirm. Will you affirm that prayers are not heard with a quarrelsome spirit? Now, Proverbs says a lot about quarreling. Uh, seven, Proverbs, Proverbs 17, 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 3 says, it is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 15, we read, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights 
in the world. Do you have a quarrelsome spirit? What, what is a quarrelsome spirit? Uh, Kevin DeYoung, in an article written for the Gospel Coalition, suggests a number of characteristics. Um, here are nine of those that he lists as characteristics of a quarrelsome spirit. One, you defend every conviction with the same degree of intensity. Two, you are quick to speak and slow to listen. Three, your only model of ministry and faithfulness is the showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Four, you are incapable of seeing nuances and do not believe in qualifying statements. Five, you never give the benefit of the doubt. Six, you have no unarticulated opinions. Seven, you are unable to sympathize with your opponents. Eight, you first, your first instinct is to criticize and your last instinct is to encourage. Nine, you have never changed your mind. I find what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 22 through 26 to be very helpful. Um, and let's be honest, it's easy to get into arguments. It's easy to get into arguments, particularly when you have an opponent that's challenging you. But Paul says this, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, having nothing to do with foolish ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I think one of the things that drives anger, that drives a quarrelsome spirit, is that is really when we try to be God. We try to be in control. We try to control everything. We try to control other people. Rather than what Paul articulates here is we have a responsibility before God to endure evil, to patiently instruct, gently correct, but really depend upon the Holy Spirit, depend upon God to bring about a change of heart in those who oppose us. So it's an expression of trusting God. So I, I would ask this morning as we close, pray for us as elders that we can be men who lead in prayer uh, with holy hands, uh, without anger, without quarreling. Uh, pray, pray for us in that way. Um, but let's also pray for one another that we will see the importance of prayer. Um, and as we grow in holiness and as we live in step with the Spirit, uh, not, not in sinful anger, not with a quarrelsome spirit, let's, let's pray. Let's be people who affirm the importance of prayer. Um, if you blow it, if you say, you know what? Prayer isn't important in my life. Or if, if you are living a life that is, is, is holding on privately to sin while all the while pretending to be okay, if 
you're living a life with a short fuse and you're just constantly angry, agitated, bitter, resentful. If, if you have a quarrelsome spirit where you just love to get into arguments, you love to win arguments, you love to be right. It, if those kinds of things are true in your life, I encourage you, and the Spirit would say, repent. If you blow it, confess that sin to God. Confess that sin to the person that you've sinned against. Ask their forgiveness. Praise God for the verse that we, that Andrew read as we began this morning. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not what happens just when we first become a believer, but that is something that again and again we turn to as believers when we are convicted by the spirit of our sin, we confess that sin and we run to Jesus thanking him for his shed blood that atoned for our sin so that we can be forgiven. And we express thankfulness for the spirit that helps us to change and grow to put off sinful anger, to put on kindness, compassion, and a readiness to forgive, a readiness to forgive. Let's pray together. Father, we are indeed mindful today and thankful today for the mercy and the grace that you extend to us through your son, Jesus. We're thankful that you know us well, you know everything about us, and you know how much and how desperately we need a Savior, and you provided that Savior, your very own Son. And we're very grateful that he willingly laid down his life so that we could be forgiven. We're thankful for your Spirit that dwells with us, that changes us, that helps us to grow so that we don't continue on in our sin, but we learn to put off sin and to put on holy living. Father, I pray that you would help us as elders here in this local church to be men who can pray, not hiding or holding on to sin, but pray with holy hands. I pray, Father, that we can lead this church in depending upon you without sinful anger and without a quarrelsome spirit. But, Father, I pray that you, by your spirit, would produce those things in all of us for the building up of this church and really to reflect your character to this world. I pray, Father, that those who are living in darkness will see the light of Jesus and come running to you for mercy and for grace. So, Father, help us, I pray in Jesus' name.